We are reading from Micah, so if you're wanting to follow on in your own Bible or the Pew Bibles, uh, you'll find it between Jonah and Nahum at the end of the Old Testament, about six or so books back from the end. Or you could just watch it on the screen behind me. We'll be starting at Micah 1, verse 1, and reading through to chapter 2 and verse 5. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. Look, The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass on in nakedness and shame, you who live in Sapha. Those who live in Zanan will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning, its protection is taken from you. Those who live in Morath writhe in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness the team to the chariot. You were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Moreshgath. The town of Aksib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marashah. He who is the glory of Israel will come to Adullam. Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bald as the vulture, for they will go down, uh, will go from you into exile. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. 
They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traders. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Okay, um, this uh, passage is a, is a bit of a, a shifting year for the, for the tone, isn't it? So today, as um, we embark on this section of scripture, uh, this is not going to be a triumphal kind of sermon. Uh, this is not going to be a time when we, uh, you know, go out of here sort of springing around and sort of, it's, it's a different kind of tone, friends. Um, that's what we get with God's word. There's a, a different sort of balance. Uh, and so we're just going to, we're going to take this and for the tone that it is and, and reflect on um, this word to us today. So let's pray and, and get into it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us uh, serious things to think about. We thank you that as we um, take a bit of time out, we can reflect on where we stand with you and uh, what things in life are important. And we can think about uh, in a world that's fallen and hard, uh, we can think about the hope that we have in you for, for a different kind of future. And Lord, we thank you for this word today and we pray that you'd help us to understand it together and to benefit from uh, this message. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can see in your introductory outline there, the topic is uh, warning signs. Every now and again you see a warning sign and you think, you know, you know what's coming next. Well... Last week, it's sad to say it, but I, I saw a dog get hit by a car. Yeah, it was a, a sad moment, actually. I was driving home. I was just driving up um, Gordon Street. And a dog crossed over four lanes of traffic. And then I saw the owner coming down the street, sort of waving his hands around in distress, and then the dog kind of turned up Lord Street and crossed over another four lanes of traffic. And it was a, it was a busy time, that time of morning. And, uh, yeah, I could see the warning signs. This dog was chasing a popper. Um, it wasn't thinking about much. Um, yeah, I know, it's kind of funny at one level, but in other ways it was just disastrous. The... Um, the thing skips across onto Lord Street and he got hit by a four-wheel drive and cars pulled over and I think the good news story is maybe the dog got picked up, it didn't get altogether run over and, and hopefully they took it to the vet and you know it might be in plaster or something like that. But I could see things uh, before the accident, you could see things, as soon as this dog zipped across four lanes, you could see things are going to end badly here. And after that accident, 
I started to think about this situation. I started to wonder how, how could things get to be like this? How did it get to the point where it was going to end in disaster for a dog and his sad owner? And as I thought about that situation, it challenged me to be a little bit more cautious in my driving and it challenged me to be a little bit more thoughtful and cautious as I live. And I introduced that story here at the start of this book of Micah because I think in some ways that's a bit like what we're seeing here before us in the Word of God today. What could this book be compared to? Could it be compared to seeing a collision coming? Maybe. Micah, through the Spirit of God, he can see what's coming. The things that he's writing about now, they haven't yet come, but he can see what's coming. And serious things were going to come from God because this was going to be time for God's justice. By and large, the people had been rebellious against the Lord. And now things were about to unfold and play out according to God's terms of his covenant. And so at one level, what we've sort of been reading about today, uh, there's, there's no surprises at one level for the people of Israel, just this awful anticipation that God's justice is going to unfold. And the readers of this prophecy during Micah's day, they were supposed to have uh, their attention uh, grabbed by this message. They're supposed to be challenged. And for the people of our day, people like me and people like you, we're supposed to read this and it's got to get our attention as well. We've got to be challenged to, to readjust our attitude towards the Lord uh, as we watch waves of awfulness flow over the history of Israel and also as we see beyond that, that awful swell to uh, a calmer time, a time of hope, a, a more wonderful time uh, beyond this time of judgment. So we've got to have our attention uh, grabbed this morning as we think about this message. Well, Micah and his message, that's, the, that's where we're up to now. Point one, we learn from 1 verse 1 that he's from a place called Morasheth, which is a little village about 40 kilometres southwest of Jerusalem. We don't know much about Micah from the Old Covenant, apart from in Jeremiah chapter 26, where he's mentioned as one who prophesied during the reign of King Hezekiah. In fact, he called King Hezekiah to repent and put his trust in the Lord. And this book is not written in a, in a chronology. There's actually, it's a difficult structure if there is one to, to really even discern. Uh, it's a record from Micah's whole life and ministry. And it spans the reigns of three kings there in verse 1, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. And it concerns particularly what he saw concerning the northern kingdom around Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. This record is described in verse 1 as the word of the Lord that came to Micah. And it's first and foremost a message for the people of his time and his day. And it was for them to sharpen up on 
a reminder for them to take their responsibility to serve the Lord. That was the challenge for them. To love the Lord, to repent from their sin, and to remember their, their good status as the people of God. That's, that's first and foremost who it's written to. But we also know that the, um, the Bible, because of its author is God, it's God-breathed, this is also a message to us to do too, today. And so as we um, look at this message from our sta- stage of salvation history, we're at the stage where Jesus has come in, uh, in the time after this judgment and has, has brought hope, uh, we can learn something from this prophecy as well. We've got to look for the principles that are handed down in this prophecy that we can learn from for our own lives. And so as we look at it, let's see first of all what it, what it says to the original recipients, but also how it leads to hope in Jesus and uh, what we can take from some of these principles for, the, for those people, for their lives, and what we can take from, uh, from it as we see how Jesus uh, fulfills some of the hope that, that it holds out. Well, in uh, chapter 1 to verse 4, we get the news that God will visit. Here, Micah, Micah comes across someone like a, uh, a lawyer in a courtroom with language calling God to bear witness to Israel. This is almost like a courtroom scene. Verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. This is a message for all kinds of people. And the message is that God's established his covenant with Israel. He was their God, they were his people, and he established his law to describe how how they were to live as his people. And Micah now comes as like a a covenant lawyer to Israel and saying, here's the update, you're in breach of the covenant and you're going to receive some news about what's coming next because judgment was also spelled out in the law and that's what Micah's doing, he's putting putting Israel on notice, saying you've breached the covenant and you're going to find out what's coming next. And right on cue in verse 3, the Lord himself comes and bears witness against them to carry out justice. Verse 3, as readers, we're invited into the action. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Heaven is described as uh, the Lord's throne and earth's described as his footstool. The tabernacle and the temple were described as just copies of a heavenly reality. And here we have this picture of God coming from his heavenly court to visit his people and it's a it's a terrifying picture he's treading the heights of the earth and he's flattening out the valleys now the heights um has connotations of wickedness because in their high places 
uh, it's just a little bit intriguing actually. They, they had these high places for their Baal worshipping and asterisks and their idolatry because on a, on a high place they could, you had this turning point on the hill, it was a bit flat and so you could set up your fire and make your offerings and that type of thing. And they saw the hills as the, the touchstone of heaven and earth uh, to meet with Baal or whatever. But this is the news that uh, these high places, God's coming in judgment, he's coming to flatten these things. Point three in the sermon outline is that Samaria and Judah, they're going to face the music. In 1, 5 to 9a, Micah's prophecy about the future of Samaria and it's also about the southern kingdom of Judah. Now it's worth noting that in these uh, verses sometimes the name Jacob's used and that's, that's more often than not a reference to the northern kingdom. And sometimes Israel is used interchangeably, but it, it can refer also to the southern kingdom or the north. And we see this uh, judgment that's announced to both the north and the south in verse 5. All this because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. So that's Jacob's talking about the northern kingdom and, and the sins of the people of Israel might be a reference to the southern kingdom. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I'll make Samaria like a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I'll pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. Primarily this section has uh, Samaria that's in view. There was a main building, the Acropolis, uh, built by King Omri. It was a large and solid building. I think it was about 100 metres uh, wide and about 250 metres long, something, something fairly substantial. Outwardly, it was impressive and strong. It had some big stones there as well. Uh, but these large stones, it was, it was going to get smashed. It took about three years for the Assyrians uh, to besiege it because it was up high. Uh, but these, some of these stones would be tossed into the valley below. Uh, why was this going to happen? Well, it's there in verse 5, because of Jacob's transgression. This is uh, trespassing. He's, they've crossed a line, as they say. Well, how did they cross the line? Well, as a nation, we see that in verse 7, uh, it's about idolatry. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will be used again. And so we see that a feature of their lives was idolatry. They breached which commandments? They breached the first commandment, have no other gods before me and have no idols. This remark about the prostitutes might be a, a deeper way of saying they've been unfaithful to the Lord God and they've, they've sought to um, look outside that relationship with God to the other nations and their, their gods. They might have benefited financially by trading with some of the other nations but in, into the bargain they lost something of their soul their identity as the people of God in the process. And the comment in verse 7b about the wages, as the wages of a prostitute, they will again be used, 
maybe a way of saying that, that the goods they've brought and the idols and the images, well, they've, they've received these things, but they're also going to be taken back off them. And uh, the Assyrians actually did that. They took away the, uh, from Samaria the divine images. And if you're a bit of a history buff, you can look at the uh, Nimrod prison of uh, a king, Assyrian king called Sargon II, who attests that this is what happened. Their decision to be led by their sinful desires to have other gods and idols had consequences. Their decision to forsake the Lord, uh, to be ungrateful to God and treat his grace as cheap had some consequences. The terms of God's covenant were crystal clear. If they walked with the Lord, they could anticipate life and blessing. But if they forsook the Lord, they could anticipate God's judgment. And Micah announces that that judgment is going to come to both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And as far as Samaria is concerned, you can actually read about this in the account in 2 Kings 15 to 18. There's a record there about a series of Assyrian kings who invade the promised land. Tiglath Pileser III, referred to as a king called Pul, uh, Shalmaneser V, and Sargon II. Uh, these, these are Assyrian kings that waged war against Samaria. In fact, um, Shalmaneser V transformed the, the area of Samaria into an Assyrian province and called it Samarina. And it became a, a mixed area of ethnic Assyrians and Israelites. And so what are we to make of this crisis in Samaria and Israel? Was all this a surprise? Was it a surprise? Well, I just want to make a remark now in application on God's justice. Uh, to get a context for what we're reading in these minor prophets. The, these are, the prophets are like the covenant lawyers. They're bringing people back to the covenant that God had with the people. In Exodus chapter 19, we read how God rescues uh, Israel from slavery. On eagles' wings, he carries them to himself and challenges them and says, look, I'm willing to make you my most treasured possession, my most trusted ally i'll make you into priestly royalty if you're willing to serve me as your god to obey, obey my covenant and walk with me and moses presented those terms to the people in exodus 19 verse 8 they said we will do everything that the lord has said and the lord challenged the people to keep covenant with him in deuteronomy chapter 8 after they'd settled into the good land and enjoyed the blessings from God, God told them that they had to be on guard against their hearts. They're challenged not to forget their arrangement with God. And we read that then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And they had set before them the promises of blessings uh, in the good land of life with God if they walked with the Lord and maintained their relationship with God. Now, they weren't expected to be perfect, were they? How do we know? We know that they weren't expected to do this perfectly because God established a sacrificial system. 
he established his um, temple or the tabernacle at the time uh, for them to deal with their sins. So, so they've got a way of maintaining their relationship with God. And yet they're also challenged to, to be reminded if they just walk away from the Lord, if they forsake the Lord, then they would also face consequences for that, God's justice. And so towards the end of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses challenges the people with these words. They're quite good words. I think you'll find them encouraging. He says, now choose life so that you and your children may live and you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land. God, in his kindness and mercy, saved his people and he blessed them with undeserved blessings. And in so much as they walked with the Lord, they chose life. They chose life because the Lord was their life. He was going to give them life. He was going to make sure they were sustained. Yet we see in today's reading, sadly, they chose to serve other gods. And instead of choosing life, they chose God's justice that eventually catches up with them. Well, that's a message from the old covenant, but what about uh, our situation? What about our stage of salvation history? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 31, there's a promise of the new covenant. And as members of the new covenant, you know what? We get a similar challenge. Did you realise that? In John's gospel, uh, Jesus speaks about assurance for those who stick with him, who remain in the vine. Uh, there's assurance of, of life that comes by holding fast to Jesus. But no assurance is given if we reject the Lord. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Unless we remain in Christ, the message is there's no assurance that all is well. Unless we remain in Christ, there's no assurance that we're saved. Assurance of salvation is given to those who remain in Christ, in God's grace. And so the challenge, one of the challenges this morning is let us be among those people. Let's make sure that we're going to take this warning seriously and stand the test of time as God's people and make it to the end of the race. That's why we continue to meet up week in and week out so that we don't fall by the wayside. The challenge is for us to be among those who remain in the vine to maintain our standing within God's grace, not to take God's grace cheaply. He's given us life through Christ. It's a gift. And so this is not something we should just treat like it's, it's, it's something we can be flippant about. So there's a warning to the people of the Old Covenant uh, but there's also a challenge for the people of the New Covenant, not to, not to take God's grace lightly. 
Well, let's move through this uh, section, otherwise you'll fall asleep, and I can't have that. <laughs> so let's uh, move to the section about a lament for the city's anticipating God's judgment. Mike is dismayed at the prospect of the justice to come, and we read about a lament in verse 8. Because of this, I'll weep and wail. I'll go bare, about barefoot and naked. I'll howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Mike is uh, not rejecting the idea of God's justice. He's not like the false prophets in uh, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, who says, does God do such things? You know, God's not going to bring the judgment. That's what the false prophets said. They don't want to get out of favour with the people. Instead, Micah's upset about the prospect of what's coming because of the necessity of judgment and also the effects of it. And he mentions these things because he's attempting to provoke a response from the people. It's not, it's not that he's bored and just needs to write a story. You know, he's got a bit of time on his hands. He's writing these things down to get people's attention to help them to have a more thoughtful approach to the Lord. And he starts to use some wordplay in the next few verses. I'm not going to unpack every little section in the next couple of verses in 1, 9 to 16. What we're starting to see is that there are different cities around Jerusalem that are under threat. And these, these places are going to experience some judgment to come. And Micah starts to get the attention of the people by using the names of those towns and then he uses some words that sound like it to actually speak about judgment to come. And I'll give you an example of this. This might even keep you intrigued. Um, he says in, in Gath, you'll see a little footnote there. It says, uh, for example, in verse 10, the footnote that Gath sounds like the Hebrew word for tell. See, tell it not in Gath, the Hebrew word sounds like tell. And the English equivalent might be, as one commentator put it, tell it not in Tellington. Mm, there we go, there's a little bit of a play on words. And there were, there's Beth Ophra, where Beth means house, like Bethlehem is house of bread. Um, Bethel is house of El. You know, this is, um, Ophra is dust, so we've got... Uh, house of dust, so Beth Orphra, roll in the dust, and the English, as one commentator put it, um, dust manor will eat dirt. Almost sounds like a dad joke at that point, doesn't it? But Okay, we kind of get this play on words with these towns. They continue. These are, these are towns about 20 kilometres from each other, and they're actually the towns where um, I think it was King Sennacherib who comes and uh, lays siege to these places. This is, uh, this is awful stuff. Uh, dressy town, flee naked, safe fold, will not save. Wallchester's walls are down. A bitter dose drinks bitterton. Well, these aren't written in, you know, this is not what we're reading in the Bible. This is just what the English equivalent is for these things. Now, the reason why he's um, using this wordplay, it's not, it's not to entertain them. Uh, it's the idea that some words trigger strong feelings, don't they? Some words, when you hear them, they give a sense of foreboding, a threat of what might come. Words like debt. Words like unemployment. 
words like loneliness. Some words have a sense of foreboding. They're awful. And these trigger words Mike is using to get a, a reaction from people to remind them not to take God for granted. And so the message from Micah is a sober one. God's judgment's going to re reach these places for their rebellion and wickedness to live uh, not according to his word. And we see it that uh, he's telling some people to get used to what's coming next in verse 16. Well, I had a bit of a laugh at this one when I read it. Um, shave your head in the morning uh, for the children in whom you delight. Make your head as bald as the vulture for they will go into exile. Now, apart from little jokes about the preacher having a similar haircut to what's mentioned in these uh, verses, uh, shaving one's head apparently was the idea that you... It was an expression of mourning. And apparently, something like they, they might have shaved just a bit of their head. But here, they're kind of, the impression is, look, there's a threat that, that's coming. It's disastrous. You better do a bit more than just shave a little bit. You know, in fact, keep going. Go as bold as the vulture. You know, we can see what that image looks like, can't we? Uh, so, this is kind of a challenge to say, look, you know, things are going to be disastrous. So, if you're going to start mourning, well, you know, go the vulture. And what we see is a prophecy of some exile to come and some sorrow as parents watch their kids go into it. So, it's all, it's all dreadful. <coughs> Micah wants to get their attention so that they might firm up on their values to serve and love the Lord. And news that God's going to judge will get their attention. As history unfolds, this is what we see. Those, those towns that are mentioned, they get attacked in 701 BC by King Sennacherib. We read about this in 2 Kings 18 verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Sennacherib lays siege to the fortified cities of Judah and you know uh, what also happens? It's intriguing. King Hezekiah, uh, he starts to give in to Sennacherib for a while and give some, give some money. And then he repents and he grows in his faith in the Lord and he's delivered. Uh, the Lord delivers King Hezekiah from the hand of Sennacherib at Jerusalem. That's a good news story. Well, we're in the last stretch now. Point five, rebuke against the unjust. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we gain some more aspects into their lives which lead to their judgment. And Micah bestows the remark in 2, verse 1, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. In chapter 2, verse 2, there's mention of a betrayal of the way that God's provided to establish families and pro provide for families through family land that was to endure through the generations. Some with their power set aside God's intentions for land to be distributed well and on the 50th year of Jubilee, if any, any went into debt, they could kind of get it back. And so there was this way of making sure that there wasn't poor in the land. But the problem was some people did pretty well and some people were pretty desperate. And in verse 2, we find that th those do, who did well uh, abused their power. In verse 2, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them 
They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. During the time of King Isaiah, things were going pretty well in the kingdom of Israel. There was a bit of wealth to be had and there were some who were doing very well. There was a greater spread between the haves and the have-nots and some began to abuse their financial advantage at the expense of those who were more desperate. But was God unaware of this situation? Did they think they could, uh, you know, they think they could, you know, hide it? like little kids try to hide things from their parents sometimes, that they think they could get away with this unjust and corrupt behaviour. Well, three to five indicates that in the wake of God's judgment, the tables will be turned. Verse 3 says, The Lord says, I'm planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They'll taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our field to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the lot by land. Those who are taking other people's land would soon have a taste of their own porridge. They'd have a taste of their own medicine as their land and their goods were taken in the subsequent invasion and exiles. God knows what's been going on and he's not going to let the guilty go unpunished. Well, what can we learn from this prophecy that's written several hundred years before Christ? We learn that God is a holy God. We learn that he's a just God that he gives his good law for the people to live by so that they might have life. Even for the poor to benefit uh, from his compassion in the land. And we see that God knows how to bring justice to bear on the unrighteous and those who are rebellious. That's what we see. God not only knows how to care for his people, he still knows how to judge. We also see that this stage of salvation history looks forward to a better time, a time that's beyond this kind of judgment. A time when the new covenant's established and, and sin and weakness won't be remembered anymore. In fact, right the way through, even past our time into the time of God's kingdom at the end, there isn't going to be even the scope to sin anymore. Isn't that a good news? What principles are handed down here for our benefit as we seek to live today as members of the new covenant. Well, today, as we're confronted by the severity of the the events that have been uh, spoken about, our reaction ought to be one where, at this point, we're supposed to remember that we can't uh, be treating God in a way that's disrespectful. We can't be ungrateful for his many mercies to us. Uh, our challenge is to take God seriously, not to, forget it, not to forget about the Lord as we live. This is the challenge for us, to think about how are we going to respond to the Lord God. Now, I must say, we've been presented with a sober sermon with the message of God's judgment, but if the sermon was just left at this point, that would actually be 
um, asymmetrical. It, it wouldn't be a good balance of what God's actually like. And so the broader message of, about God is, is about someone who doesn't only judge uh, and apply justice. We also see something of hope as well, a hope that exists beyond this experience. In fact, um, next week, if, you, if you're still coming to church, uh, we'll see in chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, a, a section that speaks about hope for those who did serve the Lord. They're described as the remnant of Israel. They were among those who continued to serve God as king. And God as king is also described in terms like a shepherd uh, who leads his sheep into safety. And as we know later in the New Testament, Jesus comes ultimately uh, in the history of Israel as the good shepherd. He comes as God's true king. He lays down his life and bears uh, God's justice, the, the justice that we actually deserve too, isn't it? I mean, in our hearts, we know we go astray. We know that we need a saviour. And Jesus comes as the good shepherd who lays down his life for us. Jesus gives us assurance that we're safe with God. Today, as we've seen events spoken about Micah by Micah, uh, our reaction to God's word should be one where it stirs us to think about uh, living more carefully before the Lord. In the same way that I saw that poor dog get hit by the four-wheel drive, you know, that provoked me to think, well, I've got to be more cautious in life, drive more cautiously, manage risk a bit better, be more thoughtful about how I live. Things don't have to go like that. And here we're challenged to be more cautious, not to flirt with sin, not to treat God's grace as though it's cheap, but to remember God's kindness to us in Christ. Remember Jesus is the true vine and we've got to remain in him. Remember Jesus is the good shepherd and we've got to continue to follow him. May God help us to remain in the vine and to be those who follow Jesus, the good shepherd. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for this word today, which is a challenge to us. Lord, we thank you that you get our attention and we pray that you'd help us not to treat you disrespectfully. Help us to treat you more seriously in our lives, put, putting you number one. Help us to walk closely with you so that we persevere as your people and make it to the end of the race that you've called us to. Lord God, we pray that you'd uh, help us to look at our own hearts and the areas of our lives that we need to turn from uh, in our rebellion. And we give you thanks for your grace that you... Um, you call us back to yourself and, and we give you thanks for your grace in giving us each other whom we can encourage to each um, build up in Christ. Please help us to keep walking with you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.